You're listening to This is the Work, the podcast, a podcast that shares insights and lessons learned from the Technology Access Foundation, a Seattle-based organization dedicated to providing black and brown students opportunities and access to STEM education. On this episode, we talk with Trish DeZico, the co-founder and executive director of the Technology Access Foundation, Dr. Sheila Edwards-Lang, the president of Seattle Central College, and Keisha Scarlett, the executive director of organizational development and equity for Seattle Public Schools. Trish, Dr. Sheila, and Keisha discuss their personal successes and failures working in the educational space, what their identities mean to their work, and the challenges facing public education in the Seattle area. This is The Work, the podcast is recorded in Taft Studios at the Beth Day Learning Space in Seattle, Washington, and is powered by us, Black by Design. My name is Trish Malines DeZico, and I am the co-founder and executive director of the Technology Access Foundation, and we provide STEM education to kids of color in our public school system. We are 21 years old. I'm Keisha Scarlett. I work with Seattle Public Schools. My current role is Executive Director of Organizational Development and Equity and oversee probably the biggest role is our Department of Racial Equity Advancement. So we have a director who does like operations. So I do the strategic direction for that for the Department of Racial Equity Advancement. It was from Equity and Race Relations um, Department. Our role is policy implementation and working with our 43 to 45 or so racial equity teams and also providing professional development. I'm Sheila Edwards-Lang and I'm the president at Seattle Central College, formerly Seattle Central Community College. We are one of the largest urban serving institutions in the state. We have about 15,000 students. And before that, I served as the chief diversity officer at the University of Washington for nine years, working on equity and inclusion for faculty, staff, and students. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about success. So at TAF, we're always talking about whatever we say about our students, we apply that to adults, right? That's a big part mm-hmm. of, of the TAF DNA. I can't think of three more accomplished, and I was watching some old video of you today. Fresh out of Microsoft. Oh, Lord. Right? <laughs> I had no gray hair then. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Wait. And I had a lot more hair. Yes. <laughs> and... And I was listening to you describe this story around being in the wrong math class mm, yes. um, and having a teacher recognize that. You know, sometimes it's just we go back to this notion of environments. Adults play a role in not only setting the environments, but determining the environments that our students end up being in mm-hmm. in terms of their education. Say a little bit about your role and how you think about from your position, your impact on the environment that both students are in and then also being the place that adults have to work in to support those students. Like, what does that work look like for you? Well, first of all, it's creating a college and I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to be at a college that um, espouses as a value equity and inclusion and not just diversity. And so really thinking about what are the student experiences and our faculty and staff, what are their experiences from the moment they walk in the door? How are they treated by security? How are they treated by the the parking staff? When they go into the classrooms, are they seeing themselves reflected in a positive light? Um, Are they made to feel inferior? And so one of the things I did last year was put in a whole professional development series for faculty and staff. 
So really um, just bringing in different folks to talk about microaggressions and what that looks like, what that feels like, so um, that people can understand that. We had some folks come in and do implicit bias and how that enters into evaluation processes, both in teacher evaluations, but also when we're hiring folks. You can never really eliminate the implicit bias, but you can be cognizant of it and minimize the negative impact of it. And so really trying to create inclusive and welcoming spaces for everyone who walks through our door. So it's, it's never, the work is never done. I think it is iterative. And, and even mm-hmm. at a place like Seattle Central, where we, we think that we are the social justice hub of the city, mm-hmm. there is still lots of work to be done. So someone said success and failure. Talk a little bit about one of your successes and maybe an area where you learned um, in that work. Hmm. So I would say one of the successes uh, that we have Um, And I had it at at UW too, and that is really getting the faculty and the deans to understand that they needed to change their practices. And uh, when I was at UW and we were working on the advanced project in the College of Engineering, it got to a point where the chairs would look at the outcomes um, in terms of number of women and number of people of color hired, and they would be embarrassed if they didn't have outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it became competitive. Well, look, I was able to get one too, which you know, it, it, get get a good outcome. But it's like, look, I was able to recruit and 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 deliver a, a mostly women um, faculty, and so it became a competitive badge of honor to them. And at the end of the day, we got more women in the College of Engineering in faculty positions, and and I'm seeing that same thing happening at. Seattle Central, where they, it's almost like bragging rights now. It's like, I i am, as a chair or as a dean, I'm so good because I've been able to hire a woman or, or faculty of color. And I'm like, well, whatever it takes, it's changing the culture. Um, it's changing the expectation of what is a good outcome in, in hiring practices. I would say in terms of failure, I haven't had any yet at Seattle Central, but I had many many at um, when I was at the University of Washington. And probably one of the most spectacular public failures was really trying to convince people that we needed to desegregate for Southeast Asian. Mm. And convincing Mm. folks that um, while we had a large number of Asian um, students and and even um, employees at the University of Washington, trying to convince folks that there was really differential outcomes for more recent Asian immigrants and that we really needed to disaggregate the data to, to look at those outcomes. And when, you know, when you're at a place where almost a third of the students were, were Asian, folks didn't want to hear that. And so really got a lot of pushback from people that I thought were allies. And, and even as I was trying to do the right thing, got a lot of negative pushback from the Asian Pacific Islander community. It was really an ugly time for me really hard and because I was trying to do the right thing. I knew all of the um, national data was showing that we really needed to disaggregate because if you look at Pacific Islander populations and Hmong and some of the Cambodian and Laotian um, populations, they have high school graduation rates that are lower than Latino and African American and Mm -hmm. even lower than than Native American students. Mm -hmm. 
but no one wanted to hear that yeah. because they just look at this big Asian Pacific Islander uh, population. And in the end, I was I don't think I was very successful at it, and it became a huge community fight, and and we were able to get some some progress. We changed the admissions application to be able to capture the data for um, Southeast Asian populations. But I think it's still an uphill battle. Um, I was not, not able to solve that problem before I left UW. Mm. And it left a lot of battle scars. Yeah. Successes and failures, Keisha. Yeah. I'm thinking about being a school leader as Dr. Sheila is talking. And I would say one of my greatest successes is was my focus on mathematics in my school and thinking about early learning mathematics. And um, so we brought a community mathematician, Brother Norman Austin, into the school. And he was our mathematician in residence. And he came for free. I didn't have any money for him. But I promised that I would figure something out. I'm pretty resourceful. And so he just came and started to do a Saturday um, math program. Or excuse me, a morning math program, 7 a.m. Those kids were there before school for 45 minutes before school started at 7.45 or 8 o'clock. So he really focused on like third through fifth grade mathematics. And then at the same time, I started to do an accelerated approach with fifth grade mathematics where they were taking fifth grade and sixth grade at the same time. And at eighth grade, I created double periods where you have eighth grade math and then algebra one. So three different parts of sort of continuum, this 10 grade continuum. So what was successful for that, I think at the middle school level, was the fact that um, that first year that I did that, none of the students opted out, and quite a few of them did very well on the Algebra one in the course exam. And what also was great about it was that there were some seventh graders who were advanced, and they were in the Algebra one class. And so then in eighth grade, they went over to Rainier Beach, and they had geometry um, honors over at Rainier Beach High School. So, I mean, year after year, we had these kids. At one point, I think in 2014, 13, 14 school year, 25% of our eighth graders were over at Rainier Beach High mm-hmm. School taking geometry. We're two years advanced in mathematics. So this is like this APP track, right, um, mm-hmm. in Seattle, or this highly capable track where we didn't do testing. All I did was look at like a cut score of like 50%, 50 percentile on the map that made a decision about kind of, you know, where kids were going to go. I may have stretched down to 43 if the kids thought they wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of go into there. And those kids, 100% of them passed tests, Algebra 1 EOC, the Geometry EOC, they all passed those assessments. But also those younger kids have started to cultivate the same. I would say my failure in that was bringing staff people along. They just didn't believe in my baby's mm. magic. Yeah. I'd just be so mad. So I just made some moves, you know, and it probably alienated me from some staff people. I got the willing workers, right? I worked mm-hmm. with the low-hanging fruit, the people who were willing, who believed in the magic. And just, but I should have been keeping, cultivating those people who were maybe on the fence about it. I think that it was a stretch for some of them in their own content skills that we were asking for that they didn't feel comfortable with. And I just always say they're always putting, you know, people put breaks and limitations on kids, but really it's their own limitations. Mm -hmm. That's what they're afraid of. The double periods, the extra time, speaking with their parents, working with the Rainier Beach staff, helping to align FTE with the principal over there so that we picked up FTE and helped the support. So we had co-funded FTE. 
I would say we were beginning to um, work with University of Washington on the early learning part of it, the pre-K part, and really starting to build and cultivate this. So how does this look like a pathway? And then at the same time, we had gotten the competitive funds through the city of Seattle Families and Education Levy. I, one of the, it, we, and we had a pre-K grant, we had the elementary innovation, and we had a middle school grant. I, my failure, I think, of bringing people along was also supersizing this program. So I wanted to give them back the money because I just wanted to focus on math. It didn't mean that we weren't going to teach reading and writing mm-hmm. and science, but we were getting so much traction. But I think it just became work that was difficult to just hold on to. For me as a school leader, perhaps I didn't cultivate enough capacity for it to continue because when I left, it toppled. And so it's the example of having sort of the octopus hand Mm -hmm. leader whose hand is like touching everything and there wasn't enough sustainability when I left the school. And so right now, students are just not having those opportunities. They're not having access to those opportunities. My turn. Success and failure. Yeah. I would say in the 21 years of TAF. Probably the biggest success, the sort of the transition of opening TAF Academy to getting where we are now. So starting from convincing you and Sherry to jump off this ledge with me without a parachute mm-hmm. and taking the dive into creating a school model to having that model be uh, created and launched in federal way, becoming an award-winning school. And that, that's really from getting the right people in the right place and doing the right work and staying focused on the work. I feel really good about the folks we have working with us. It took us a while um, to get that that core crew of teachers that we can rely on, but I, I think it was, in the end, it, it really worked out well. And then transitioning to uh, expand to TAF at Sahali, so being successful enough that the district wanted us to bring that model to other kids and feeling pretty good about it. It was a rough start, rough start, uh, merging two cultures. But I feel like we're at a place now where we can really take off with the academics um, and really starting next year, like we're going to knock it out the park. And it's been pretty, I think it's been pretty well documented, the work that we've done at TAF Academy. But I don't think people really know the, the inside story around how hard we worked as a team and how we brought the right people in to do the work and how we actually formed this organization around it, right? So all the hiring from that point on was around getting the kind of people that can help us move this work in the public education system. <clears throat> the failure that I always bring up that pains me to this day is not being in Seattle, not opening TAF Academy in Seattle. And not so much that, but how it happened. You know, really putting our faith in the the, uh, the superintendent and all the people that report to him. He was great. He wanted us there. But the people who reported to him were not our allies. And uh, we were pretty naive. I, I would say I was really naive around that, thinking that they actually cared mm-hmm. about this work. And they let us down to two ambushes. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, God. You know, um, I'm hopeful that we'll be in Seattle at some point. The bright side of this whole thing is we learn what leadership looks like. Mm -hmm. Right. Tom Murphy was a great leader in uh, federal way. He's retired now. And so we learn what leadership looks like. We learn what how you run a, a, a school district, which was knowledge we didn't have prior to that. Now we know what to look for. So now we have good partnerships going forward. 
with Tacoma. Yeah, there was a bright side to that, but it's still raw as hell. But the great irony is that as Seattle has grown, we have needed to have even more. Yes. Because our kids have been left out of this incredible economic growth that is really fueled by STEM companies, mm-hmm. whether it's the biotech industry or you know cancer research or the growth of Amazon and, mm-hmm. and everything else. Yeah. And our kids are in Seattle mm-hmm. are not benefiting from that yeah. because we don't have a TAF in Seattle. Yeah. And we don't have people to support folks like Keisha. Right? Like you have education leaders that want to do great things, but we don't have enough of you and we don't have enough people supporting you. So when you think about the number, there are 95 schools in, in Seattle, public schools. 106. And then it's 106 Growing. now. And then on the South end, how many? Not quite half. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but, but there's not the resources that you need. There's not the the other moral support that you need. To really move the needle so you have a system that is just feeding on itself mm-hmm. in a negative way and you have other people that are trying to ward it off but they're not getting enough help yeah it's, um, it's just such a fight and you know even as our system there's been a lot of site-based controls so there is some free agency of principles but it doesn't catch a fire right. it doesn't you know what i mean like connect across you know the different um schools and school leaders you know, there's a couple things that makes me think about this incongruence between people who talk equity but don't do it mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. whether it's from the dais to the leadership, a failure of leadership to have a true innovation agenda. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that if you talk to the top leadership, even in our school district now, and ask them, what is your innovation agenda for you know, students mm-hmm. in Seattle Public Schools? I think that they will fall short. They start talking yeah. about 24 credits and whatever right. that means, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> that's all people, you know, are kind of talking they need about. More money and but yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, there are just just significant barriers, and there are ways um, around that. But that if you don't have an entrepreneurial principle, you might as well forget it. These opportunities are not coming. They're not going to be present for for students, and so the um, variability of experience from school to school mm-hmm. is that whole issue about inclusion and um, diversity. Inclusion for me is about access, and when you have just such ranges of variability in school experiences from school to schools within one system, that's exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. How does that show up? What are you seeing in terms of that variability of experiences, and what? are the things that you're doing um, or the systems that are in place to kind of help despite their K-12 experience Mm -hmm. a lot of times, Mm -hmm. get them into positions where they can partake in the ecosystem? Well, it shows up at our college with students not even being ready to do college level math and English. And it shows up in the, um, even who shows up at an open access institution and just in terms of those kids that are coming out of those schools that don't have entrepreneurial principles that aren't really pushing um, the teaching and learning for them Mm -hmm. they come in woefully underprepared Mm -hmm. and it tends to disproportionately be students of color and low-income kids is there a feedback loop that goes from because we know a a significant portion of our students from for example from Seattle Public Schools Mm -hmm. go to South right central and north is there a feedback loop in terms of what you're seeing students show up being able to do and know 
back to Seattle Public Schools? Is that a conversation that happens? Yes, it does happen. And, and our faculty have worked with Seattle Public School teachers in some buildings mm-hmm. to change what happens in those buildings. But it is not uniform. And and I would say that sometimes it depends on who the feedback goes to as to whether or not anything is done with it. Because mm-hmm. I think that there are some school leaders who take that feedback seriously as part of their continuous improvement about wanting their schools to deliver excellent educational opportunities for their kids and families. And there's some who, unfortunately, they, it's not, I don't, I would guess maybe they don't care or it's just not part of their DNA to have that continuous feedback loop really drive um, continuous improvement. Yeah, I, I just, you know, how do we get our kids ready for college or tech school or anything beyond high school? It doesn't have to be a four-year college. Sometimes they're just not ready for life in general, right? Um, and then you have the whole financial piece and all that that comes with it. So um, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about my grades. I'm worried about getting making new friends and uh, understanding this college life or if I'm in an apprentice program, I'm usually in there with people that are older. You know, so all those things that are happening to our kids, how do you get them ready? And I think you get them ready by letting them fail early, mm-hmm. right? You get them ready by letting them make their mistakes early and not try to prevent them from having mistakes and let them be more independent. And particularly as they get older, like release some of that control and, you know, let them do their thing and, and hope that the school does the same thing. That's the other piece. You, you hope that the school puts some rigor into the lessons, that they get some hands-on, that they get them out in the community, they get them talking to adults and bring adults into them, into their classrooms. And we just don't have that as a public school system. We have no vision in our state around what does it mean to be well-educated in Washington State. And each, each district, I mean, you know, they're independent. They don't report to anybody. Nobody reports up to the superintendent of public instruction. It's, it's you get to do what you want to do. You just follow the basic rules around the policies and procedures. But there's nobody that's provided a vision around uh, what does it mean to be well-educated. And I just have this, this idea that I want to see our state finds somewhere between five and six really good academic models, ours being one of them, where districts can choose from for their multiple schools instead of just having this ad hoc thing. So when I think you know, our STEM by TAV, Montessori, Waldorf, IB, Cambridge, there's a couple of ones that are, are it can be done very, very well. And can we get our schools to try to adopt some of those and make them work for their individual schools? Something besides the wild, wild west that we have right Mm -hmm. now. But there's no North Star for us. And nobody knows where they're aiming for. And and everybody has their catchy, all kids learn da-da-da-da-da visions. You know, every kid everywhere succeeds. And it says, what does that mean? That means absolutely nothing. Because there's no definition of what success is. There's no definition of how you get there. So how do we, as leaders, how do we try to set that pace and bring attention to this and you know, start to rally folks 
behind this idea while we're still trying to do our job. Well, some of right? that, though, is parents, we as parents and um, educators, we do have this, this vision of what success looks like. And now that I'm at a community college, I can see it so clearly, and that is, when we say college, we mean places like the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about the variety of programs that are offered at community and technical colleges. So um, since I've been at Central, we have a maritime program, and folks coming out of that program after, um, it's a 12-month program, they come out making Mm -hmm. $70,000 a year. Now you can go to University of Washington for four years and major mm-hmm. in English. You're not going to come out making that no. kind of money. No. And you can have a a quality of life because while you may work, you know, six months on, you're six months off. So it's just mm-hmm. a different. the 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 quality of life is different. The pay scale is is different. But if as a parent, if if my child came to me and said, you know. I'm not, I'm going to go and enroll in this maritime program for a year. I'm like, what? What kind of job? You're going to college. You're going to college. college. And college means four-year university. I got to share the story because I haven't said it to you, but I know Domo and Maya will have have heard the story. So it was when I first got hired at TAF. Oh, God. And (laughs) I don't want to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think the first time I spoke with Trish, I didn't know, and I, I mean this, I didn't know who Trish was. I mean, I knew Trish, but I didn't know Trish the way, certain, certainly not the way I know now. And I didn't know your work, how how impactful your work had been. And so I came in and I was like, okay, you know, I knew something about Microsoft Millionaire. That was the big thing that everybody talked about. Mm-hmm. And then I remember being in a parking lot and some a lady asking me, would the lady with dreads fix her computer? (laughs) (laughs) So, but there was one morning, I call myself, I'm still within my first couple weeks of work, and I feel like I'm way over my head. I was building a program from kind of vaporware. We had just Mm -hmm. some words on a page, and I was supposed to take that and turn it into a program. You know, I was trying to figure out what half the words meant. The other part of it was actually trying to build something at the same time, because we had September coming up on us. So I decided one day to get to work relatively early. And I was living in Kent at the time, or coming in from Kent. No, I wasn't quite in Kent yet. I was coming in from from my grandma's. I just remember getting to the office like an hour ahead of when most people arrived at TAB. And the alarm wasn't set, which the alarm was always set. You go in, you turn the alarm off. And I remember going in and looking, and you were at your desk. You were just working away. You were doing just whatever you were doing. And I poked my head in, and you just looked up. You acknowledged me, said good morning, and went back to your work. And I was like, now this is somebody who, like you said, in a lot of ways, doesn't have to be doing this work, right? Did not have to be making that commitment at that time. But for me, that really set a precedent for just the work ethic that goes into being at TAF. You got to live it. You got to breathe it. And it's not just TAF. It's, you know, when I think about Keisha and Dr. Sheila, I think about how the folks who really move our community forward. And when you really start to look at it, it's y'all three. It's Dr. Sullivan. We've talked about Dr. Millie Russell. Mm -hmm. Um, You can call on LaVersa. It is like a pantheon of black women 
right? We can count. I mean, there's some Dr. Petries in there. There's mm-hmm. a handful of folks, but a lot of folks, and I ain't going to call no names out, but they get to this place. And I think as, as black men, we have an issue with this where you get a little bit of that cult of personality and it becomes about you, mm-hmm. right? It becomes a black man. The work becomes about us. Um, and it's not about us. And I'm always impressed and just inspired and try to emulate that of how y'all are able to not make it a show about you. Mm. You know, even though the community knows you, we value you, we love you, and we're all thankful that you're, you're here to, to continue to do this work. I want to I wanna know where does that come from? Like, what, how do you see that? Mm. And then what is that? Keisha touched on it. This yeah. is my life purpose. This is what mm-hmm. I was put here to do. It's what I'm good at. And it's, um, so I know how to get things done, but I also know how to help others get things done. Mm -hmm. And so when I get up every day, I just feel like I am so blessed. Mm -hmm. I get to do what God meant me to do here. And and like you, I grew up in church, so I'm not overly churchy, Mm -hmm. but I am really spiritual. I think that all of the things, all of the experiences, all of the mentors that I had along the way, all of the people who intervened when I could have gone the other way. My best friend from high school mm-hmm. went the the opposite way. That could have been me, mm-hmm. but I had people always intervening. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, divine intervention. Mm-hmm. I am living on purpose, and I know that my purpose is to make sure that kids who come behind me have access to the opportunities mm-hmm that I have been given. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is it is a, a mission mm-hmm. and a purpose. And I think about, you know, the many things that I like to do, but this is what I love to do, Yeah. right? And this is why I was put here and I've had two pulmonary embolisms. And so I'm here, still here, sitting here for a reason, right? And, and I think it's to do this work. And I'm just going to keep doing this kind of work. You know, it may not always be a task because some young people I know need to take it over. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) okay, thank you. Um, (laughs) But I will always be doing something uh, in this this community because we have so much to do. And it's, I'm a mother's child too. That's the other thing. As much as I tried to get away from that, Lord, I am a mother's child. I don't know. I mean, how do you, you just can't, you can't get away from that. You know what? It is what you're raised with. I, just like you, I was like, I could not stand. My mother took people in. We didn't even have, we didn't have anything. We yeah. were on welfare, Two living in public housing. Together. And my mother would still right? take in other people's yeah. children. I'm like, we don't even have enough, enough food for us. Mm-hmm. Why are you taking in other people's yeah. children? <laughs> so, like, you can't escape it now yeah. you can't escape it there are times it. when oh I God. just can't believe I have turned into my mother yeah, yeah. I know I, and that's when you get to that that space I agree with that I just you know um, and I want to push on us about self care yeah because yeah. that's what it was for me as a principal I got up my work ethic is cold I got the coldest mm-hmm. work ethic you know mm-hmm. I get up 5.30 in the morning what 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 mm-hmm. I just went to bed at one what what <laughs> I don't even drink coffee, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm a middle school teacher in heart and spirit. Uh-huh. I'd always ask for seventh grade, the middle of the middle, the craziest, right? you know, I get with them. And um, teaching math and science, technology, mm-hmm. come on, let's roll, you right. know. That self-preservation um, piece has to be there also so we can have longevity in this mm-hmm. work. It was mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I stepped away from my principalship. And I also wanted to just go back to school. I, 
just finishing up in the next two months my um, my doctoral program. And I one of the things was, um, you know, I ended up with my belly big and pre-diabetes mm-hmm. and all kind of stuff. You know, I'm not taking care of myself. And so how do you take care yeah. of everybody else and not, you know, take care of yourself at the same time? It is a constant uphill battle. Yes. I tell you, yes. it wore me out waking up at 445 this morning going to Planet Fitness. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oh, man, I cannot even tell you my mm-hmm. nerves were bad. But I knew I had a meeting at 7 a.m. and you just mm-hmm. got to get it in. And I knew that's the only way. And I didn't even want this job. They asked me four times to take this job. I had a good little HR job. Mm-hmm. I could work on equity issues, you know, um, teacher on um, the, the evaluation system, a little PAR, peer assistance review system, work on principal pipeline stuff. I had mm-hmm. all kinds of little things going on, kind of hiding out a little bit on autopilot. Mm-hmm. The superintendent asked me to come over to this job, and the first thing I was like, well, no, you can't use my phenotype to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to have a job, because mm-hmm. they decide this is colored people work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people of color <laughs> get this work, right. you get the race right. and equity and all that. Yeah, you that know, and I was true, like, oh, huh? no, 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 I can help you figure out a plan for that. And, you know, they kept asking. I was like, and I remember coming into that meeting with him, and he started talking about how he really wanted to focus on organizational development he said okay i want to acknowledge the phenotype thing let's put that to the side and talk about like your work and your skill set and he's i said my skill set is organizational development and leadership development and so you need to ask yourself do you want somebody who'd rather go see peter singe than maybe go to the white privilege conference Mm -hmm. i mean you know who actually pay instead Mm -hmm. of a free trip in the bahamas maybe to go to the white privilege conference Mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself and he said that's what i want that's what I want. They want to take advantage of my professional capital, my work, you know, mm-hmm. around equity um, to be able to move it forward. But my hesitance was, man, this is huge. I don't want to be the equity person, mm-hmm. that racial equity person for Seattle schools. I don't, I don't even know if I have the emotional fortitude to be able to bounce back from conversations mm. I may have to have with people right. and stuff. I'm outspoken to people. Just wait for it. Wait uh-huh. for it. Wait for it. Right. Okay, here come Keisha, right? right? But you know what? It was one of the things when I thought about the relationships that I have that um, that transcend across race and ethnicity, across just so many um, leaders and um, educators in the system that I admire was like, the reason why I took the job is because I knew I couldn't do it all by myself. Mm-hmm. I cannot lead our system for equity. Mm-hmm. I cannot. It's everybody else's responsibility to do that I can support with conditions mm-hmm. I can cheer you along but we need our white allies to step up mm-hmm. and we need to step back you know people of color and be like yeah mm-hmm. good uh-huh. job right. good job you know rich on keep you going and stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. because I said they're not gonna have me falling out up in here I got, right. you know I got right. a family my right. children <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to have me fall out you know yeah. so anyway so I think the other part and I see so many of sisters in this work who have visible signs of us not taking care yeah, of ourselves, yeah. too. You know, you hit 40, right your metabolism yeah. getting lower. I've always been a big person, so I've been fighting, you mm-hmm. know, fighting it back my whole life. That's a, another part of that as we hold on to this. And I think women, black women, we hold stuff anyway. Oh that is just, yes. we are those people. I think about mm-hmm. church organizations and, you know, the ratio of women to men. Mm-hmm how men get the glory of the pulpit. I'm Kojic, you know, mm-hmm. I'm saying my family, Church of God and Christ, and that strong mm-hmm. man, you know, women can't even get in the pulpit. They got a little lectern that women go right. to. They've changed a little bit and stuff like that. But I'm just saying so much of this work has been on the shoulders um, and on the backs of women um, with very little acknowledgement yeah. and us not maybe occupying the limelight or the space. So I mm-hmm. wonder how much that sort of, you know, fits into that. 
um, in this work. Yeah. But we're heart people. We're passionate. We well, feel somebody's got to do the heart. work. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, like, see, if we're in the limelight, who talking, else going to do the work? Yeah. yeah. You know, Talk right? is not going to get it yeah. done. It's not going to get it, it there. And, and, you know, <laughs> fluffing your feathers and all that stuff is yeah. it's not going to get you there. Yeah. You know? It's, that's what it's about. It's about the work, right? Mm-hmm. You just got to get it done. Amen. You asked yeah. earlier about failures, and I did a survey of, um, of women leaders just yesterday, and it asked to rate um, myself on how well I balance um, um, family and, and career. And I rated myself like really poorly because I, I don't have good balance, and I have not had good role models for self-care and for balance. Um, in terms of how to take care of yourself. And like you, mm-hmm. I ended up with, within two years of becoming the vice president at UW with um, lupus. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And you know, just a lot of chronic autoimmune things, just mm-hmm. crazy things. Mm-hmm. It's like your body is turning on itself. And, yeah. and basically what it's trying to do is tell you to sit your butt down and take mm-hmm. care of yourself. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. you know, that's toxic stress of yeah. internalizing the microaggressions and the stereotype mm-hmm. and all the mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. that we hold on to. We hold it in our guts and in yeah. our hearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, thank you all so much. Thank you. Um, how can people stay in touch with y'all? Well, I'm Trish M.I. at techaccess.org. Mm-hmm. Um, Trish DeZico on Twitter mm-hmm. and um, Trish DeZico on Facebook. Yeah. Um, Scarlet Fiva, F-E-V-A-H, on uh, on Twitter. So if you tweet, I tweet back. <laughs> um, I, um, I use it mostly for reading, but I do read the tweets that I get or different messages. Um, I'm KD Scarlet at seattleschools.org. My personal email is a complete failure at this point, so please never send anything <laughs> Gmail. It just doesn't work for me. Hmm. And shoot, call me, 206-412-6899. Call me. <laughs> Texas fastest. And I'm at Edward. Lang, L-A-N-G-E, um, on Twitter, and um, Sheila.EdwardsLang at SeattleColleges.edu. Do not call me. I'm terrible at this. <laughs> <laughs> you can text me. You can text me. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Learn more about the Technology Access Foundation at TechAccess.org. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you can read more about Trish, Dr. Sheila, Keisha, and others in the forthcoming book. This is the work the book will discuss how the Technology Access Foundation grew from an after-school program to a nationally recognized thought leader and innovator in STEM education. Stay tuned for more details about the book and go to techaccess.org to sign up for Taft's newsletter. Be sure to subscribe and follow the Technology Access Foundation on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.